Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Fanny Farmer was written off by society at a young age due to her disability, but she rallied as an adult, parlaying her talent in the kitchen into a culinary career whose repercussions persist today. The end. Let's talk about Fanny Farmer. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1857, U.S. Congress outlawed foreign currency as legal tender. The nine-inning rule for baseball replaced the nine runs equals a game rule. A New Yorker named Alexander Douglas patented the bustle. After being acquitted of charges of, quote, outraging public morals and religious and good manners and making some minor edits on the original manuscript, French writer Gustave Flaubert was allowed to publish Madame Bovary. The first ceremony for awarding the highest British award for valor, the Victoria Cross, was held by Queen Victoria herself. Jules Verne married Honorine Morel, and a future emperor of Mexico, Ferdinand Maximilian, wed Princess Charlotte of Belgium. And in 1857, the future mother of level measurements was born. Fanny Merritt Farmer was born on March 23, 1857, in Boston, Massachusetts, the oldest of the four living children of John Franklin Farmer and Mary Watson Merritt Farmer. Papa ran a printing operation at 18 Exchange Street. He and his partner had taken over the premises of a notable, quote, fancy printer and were hard at work printing things like Civil War recruitment posters, military history books, Sunday school books, sermons, poetry, and posters, including one, there has been a theft of silk goods in the amount of $30 that people could nail onto whatever the 19th century equivalent of a telephone pole was <laughs> throughout the neighborhood. You know, they were respectable, they were established, they were moderately profitable, but technology during this era was accelerating the pace of life in every arena, from transportation to the way you washed a dish, and printing underwent a massive upheaval. Out with the classic foot-pedal Gordon Jobber presses, where you do a page at a time and hope not to lose a finger. Have you ever played that game where there is an alligator and you have to reach your finger in and like press the tooth and hope <laughs> that it doesn't snap you? I was watching these hipsters who had reclaimed one of these printers, and I'm like, it is a matter of time. We are not focused any longer. And if you do not focus, because you have to literally take out the old paper, carefully put in the new paper, just in a very tight window of time before it smushes you. Right. Um, Cartoon-like flat hand is what you might right. end up with. Well, rotary machines had come in using rolls of paper and turning out hundreds or thousands of pages. So over the course of Fanny's childhood, in the background is a sort of tapering off of Papa's business of the family income. The new machinery is insanely expensive and bigger firms are just scooping up the lucrative contracts. And that, my friends, is the mom and pop shop's fate throughout the Industrial Revolution. 
While the family was doing well, they did spend their summers out at the shore in Situate, Massachusetts, which is curiously nicknamed the Irish Riviera. It's on the <laughs> it's on the south side of Boston. It was where wealthy Irish Victorians had their summer homes. And there was a huge Irish immigrant population that settled there. And their main export was a seaweed called Irish moss. When it was dried, it was used in a number of things as a stabilizer for ice cream or beer or wine. Some medicines used it. Some calico dyes used it. So this little seaside town, the Irish Riviera, was harvesting seaweed that was being used all over the world. I have actually had carrageen pudding. Oh, some of Fanny's recipes have it in it. That's why I put it here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a um, pretty common thickener because mm -hmm. um, yep. gelatin, this is slightly pre-jello. And in order to get gelatin, if, if you didn't use carrageenan, you were in a world of stink. <laughs> because you had to boil all the calves' feet, and it was just like a sort of a nightmare. So it made it a lot easier. So awesome. We don't really know too much about Fanny's mother either. We know that she was a born Bostonian, that she had a sister, that she was a few years younger than her husband. And that's about it. We do know that both parents, however, were Unitarians. They were very active in the Unitarian Church, which put an accent on science with religion. Their four daughters might marry. In fact, that would be ideal for the era. But the farmers were an intelligent family. And Unitarians as a whole were quite supportive of female education. The farmers sent all four of their daughters through high school. Less than 10% of Americans during this time had high school diplomas in the 1870s, much less a whole entire family of daughters. Quite mm -hmm. admirable, quite rare. That's a big plus for Fanny and her sisters, even though the finances at this point are dwindling so much that they had to move to another town, Medford, Massachusetts. Go Mustangs, Medford High School. And that's where Fanny was going to school. Their eldest daughter, Fanny, was considered the Hermione Granger of the family. You know, uh -huh. um, both extreme cleverness and a hearty work ethic. Due to the family's finances not being what they would have wished, they were going to have to choose which daughter was going to be the one to be allowed to go on to college. And Fanny was going to be the one. And there were actually quite a few options for women's colleges in enlightened Massachusetts. And she wouldn't even have to leave home. Mount Holyoke, for one, was already open. Wellesley and Smith didn't open until the year she would have graduated. So I don't know if those would have been options. But nevertheless, the spirit was there. Um, the opportunities were there for women to go on to college. The future was bright. It was just full of possibility. And red-haired, spicy Fanny, they they called her spicy. And then later she was called Prim. Which is it? Like, <laughs> well, you it? know what? I also saw she was called shy. I think she was one of those people. And I am one of those people that in my family, when I was a kid, especially, I wasn't quiet and shy. But if I left the house, I was. Oh, I so, see. Yeah. Well, when Fanny was 16, she and a friend had plans to meet up to get their pictures taken in yet 
another of the major technological advances of the 1870s, photography had just gotten simpler and more importantly, cheaper and really less serious. Tintypes, they were called. And you have probably had a tintype taken of yourself if you have gone to a major amusement park at any point in the last (laughs) four decades. Um, More like those, you know, the Wild West photos you can get at Worlds of Fun. Right. There were low stakes. People would bring their props or funny hats. You could make a face. It was so fun. So it was weird when Fanny no-showed to their photo session. What on earth had happened? Well, something shocking. Fanny had developed what is commonly believed to have been polio. It was very rare at the time. The first documented major outbreak wasn't going to be for another 20 years, but it was in Vermont, which is a bordering state of Massachusetts. So there's little pockets of polio. And unfortunately, Fanny was one of them. Fanny woke up with no feeling in her legs that morning, the morning of the photo shoot, and she struggled to get out of bed and and had crashed into the floor. Her frightened parents tried rubbing the feeling back into her legs. The doctor they called theorized, "Mm hmm. Perhaps she'd broken a blood vessel? I mean, like Susan said, polio was not yet the epidemic that it later would become in a few decades. Doctors were not yet able to even do anything but treat some of the symptoms. There was no proven treatment for polio. And although Massachusetts had required the smallpox vaccine for all school children since 18. 55, there would not be a polio vaccine for a hundred years after that. Polio's onset was very swift and quite terrifying. You could have a headache on a Tuesday and be paralyzed on Wednesday. My mother told me that her childhood in the 1940s, when polio was an epidemic, was fraught with the fear of polio. Pools would shut down. Schools would shut down. People would keep their children inside. It was really, really scary. And so think about even now when she gets this disease and no one really 100% knows what it even is. Right. And she is, I mean, she's stricken hard. She can't move. And she's in bed for months at the onset. Just paralyzed and afraid. And then for years following that one morning, she was unable to walk unaided or to remain upright for very long. Everything tired her. She she certainly couldn't finish high school, much less embark on college. And even after a partial recovery, now keep in mind, this is after years where she could walk with a cane. She was sort of ruthlessly eliminated by society from both the marriage market and the possibility of earning a living. Do you remember during the first season of Downton Abbey how shocked and dismissive that the lower, you know, below stairs people were when Bates arrived to his new job with a limp and using a cane? Mm-hmm. And that was decades later. They were like, why are you even pretending to be a person? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they had a hard adjustment period at the beginning. As far as the family and society were concerned, it seemed like her useful life was over. At 16. She contracted this at 16. Mm -hmm. Over time, she would see all three of her younger sisters pass her and go on to teach school a profession close to her due to her lack of a high school diploma. Family finances meant that they had to move back to Boston 
and take in some cousins as paying boarders. Although some sources will say they opened a boarding house. I mean, like, where's the line between cousins paying to live there and strangers? I mean, Mm -hmm. after about 10 years since she had contracted polio, Fanny needed to get some job. She needed to try and bring some money in. So she was hired as a mother's helper for a wealthy Cambridge family, the Charles Shaws. Fanny had learned some cooking at home, but while she was at the Shaw's house, she was able to expand on it. She began to teach her charges how to cook. At the time, it was taught that cooking was a skill that you learned by sight, by eyeball measuring, by trial and error. And once you knew, you knew. It was like you were in a secret club. You know, oh, you just use a handful of flour. Oh, you just use a pinch of salt. And the kids are like, how much is a pinch? And Fanny's like, that's the same question I had when I was learning how to cook. But let me just show you how to make these biscuits. The thing I am, I'm just going to go back for just a second. So her story, as she tells it, was that she was a mother's helper to a friend of the family. And like, they really downplayed, oh, I'm a lady help. You know, like she always gentrified it up. But literally, she's in the kitchen functionally making biscuits, which firmly puts her in the category of not a lady help. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So she's actually cooking. And to have been a natural in the kitchen was a blessing because you, at the time, had to really know your oats. You had to know what you were doing or else you could end up with some inedible mess over and over and not know how to reclaim it. Witness myself when I don't have a recipe. (laughs) Chris Graham is a natural in the kitchen and I am like, hello, where is the list? (laughs) I'm that way with baking because it's a science, you know, but cooking, I'll just eyeball it. Yeah. uh, Fanny, I agree with you. (laughs) No, that's an argument for later. Yeah. (laughs) She might not care right now, but right now, right now, that's how people learn to cook. They picked it up from, you know, their mothers and they passed it on to their daughters or in this case, kids in the house. My grandma always had this one pink cup and I wish I still had it. It's like a pink milky glass or ceramic teacup that she used as her cup measure Mm -hmm. that I guarantee you used to have a saucer at some point, but she always had it on a little hook right over the counter. And that was her cup measure. And so that's well and good. But what happens when you don't have that cup? What if it breaks? Then all your recipes are for crap. Mm -hmm. Or if you need a half a cup, how much is that in the cup? Yeah. Interesting. So that's how cooking was when she was learning. But during the years that Fanny spent struggling to recover and then learning her trade in the Shaw's kitchen, an institution of learning was coming together that would have a great impact on the direction of Fanny's life. A group of Boston women, mostly but not exclusively, extremely educated, certainly extraordinarily wealthy, were casting about for a worthy endeavor. Friends of the show will note the similarity to the conditions that led to the Settlement House movement in a later decade. If you're interested in the Settlement House movement, you should listen to our Jane Addams podcasts. Women were graduating college in greater numbers than ever, still minuscule, don't get me wrong, but they would emerge to find a society that was in no way ready for them to use their talents to participate in any way. Frustrating. And so committees were born. 
committees like the Women's Education Association in Boston. This group wasn't just looking for social service opportunities. They were helping out any women who needed it. There was a woman at MIT who wanted to open up a lab for women, so they gave her some money. One of their members, Sarah Hooper, she was a longtime Boston resident, also a Unitarian. I don't know if that's important or not, but it was to me. Sarah Hooper had gone to London and saw London's training school of cookery. The genesis of this school goes back to the great exhibition of 1851 in the Crystal Palace. There was cooking lessons. And so this school developed from that as a way to teach and train women in cooking, primarily to become domestic help. Sarah thought, we need that in Boston. And she got the Women's Education Association to seed her $100, which mm-hmm. is still, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, and it's really not. It's only about $3,000 in $2021, but they gave her some money so that she could open up the school like the one in London. The old Lady Bountiful model of charity, you know, Jane Austen's Emma Woodhouse dropping by with a shawl and a basket for the impoverished villager was increasingly impractical in this new industrial age. Society's problems were broad now. Simultaneously, the inventions of the modern age were sort of taking away the cachet of housekeeping. And I quote from Mrs. Richards, who was the one that started the MIT laboratory uh, and her feelings about cooking and housework in general. Woman was originally the inventor, the manufacturer, the provider. She has allowed one office after another to slip from her hand until she retains with very loose grasp only the so-called housekeeping. Having thus given up one by one the occupations which required knowledge of materials and processes and skill in using them, she rightly feels that what is left to her is mere deadening drudgery. Well, Ellen Richards was a trailblazer in and of herself. She was the first woman admitted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. So she is more educated and seeing her life path going in a far different way than most women. So that's, it may have sounded harsh at the time, and it's kind of harsh to us now, but she had a lot to overcome, you know, with just society, the way that women were viewed. And even the women of the Women's Education Association felt that if we improve women's lives within their sphere, they will improve the lives of their families, and that will improve the economy. So these two, uh, they're almost um, opposing thoughts. Let's use the women's sphere to improve women's lives and improve our economy. And then Ellen Richards and, you know, her friends are saying this is ridiculous. There's so much more out there. Is that not right? Is that not what we're saying? I don't think Ellen Richards was saying that. I think she she had the same viewpoint that they did. Okay, here's what I think they're all saying. This is the common ground. I think they were all saying, look, tis the season. We need to bring the same professionalism and the background knowledge of our craft, which is, you know, the intricacies of the home. We need to bring it into the scientific realm. We need to understand our materials. We need to understand our processes. We are going to bring pride and respect back into this work. I think that's what they're all saying is like, Mm -hmm. we are letting things slip from us that we once owned and we need to take it back. We need to take pride in what we're doing. You know, and I don't think they saw chemistry as being 
a separate thing from that work too. In fact, this later Boston cooking school would have extensive classes in chemistry. So I think we're all saying the same thing, just in a different way. The feminist movement, we talked about that during the Elizabeth Cady Stanton podcast, had the exact same scenario. Like, we need to be very careful to keep the feminine nature of our studies, you know, in our sphere. There was another movement in this country that was furthering Sarah Hooper's dreams, the movement toward formal vocational education for men and women was growing. Um, they thought that vocational education was the key to unlocking the cure for poverty. You know, we teach children to provide for themselves. We teach them good work habits. We give them a trade, you know, blacksmithing, carpentry for boys, sewing for girls. We're already introduced into the Boston public schools by now. And the trend was spreading across America. And so they would train all the classes the same in these schools to sort of prove that this kind of work was worthy of respect. And it was flowing over into higher education. This is the time when the backbone of the American public college and university system was being founded. And those schools were being founded for the common man, you know, for farmers. And they were to teach things that were, quote, liberal and practical, mostly agriculture and mechanical arts. But these schools are popping up all over. And that kind of gives an opportunity for these women's classes to be in those same higher education facilities. I mean, it's a slow process, but it's happening at the same time. There was a lot of concern about keeping the feminine nature of this new philosophy. Domestic science, it began to be called. Not too long after this time came the terminology that we are probably more familiar with in America, home economics. Notice science, economics. We called it home ec. Did you take home ec, Susan? I did. And I already knew how to cook and I did not get a good grade. <laughs> what? I didn't get a good grade because I already, I was cooking full dinners at the age of nine. And so I took it in high school and they're like, I could cook green beans like any way you wanted them. But the way I'm not going to cook them is the way that the home ec teacher wanted me to cook them, which is open the can, dump the entire contents of the can in a pan and heat, including the liquid, which I drained. So <laughs> that's just one example. So there was a lot of situations like, well, I know how to cook corn. You don't put that much water in it. You know, you don't boil it that long. So I, I didn't actually get a great grade because the whole thing of these home economics classes was to standardize the education and standardize how things would happen in people's homes. And I wasn't following the standardized curriculum. <laughs> were there any boys in your class? Uh, yes, there were. We had to take it. And we also had to take, um, uh, I forgot what shop. It yeah, it wasn't called that. It was something I forget. But wood woodworking. I remember making a bookshelf, like a small hanging on the wall. We all had to take it. Well, I do not know. I didn't take it in high school, just in junior high for two years. I don't know, what was I doing? But there were never any boys except for cake day. I will tell you the hallway <laughs> filled on cake day. And what are you going to do literally with 24 cakes? What? You're just going to be like, 
have one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Please take them down to the gym like for the next class. Like, so um, I imagine this hall smelled gross on tuna croquette day. I literally oh. have never tasted a tuna croquette since the year, what, 1981 or yeah. whatever year that was. We made salmon ones with canned salmon. It's like, oh God, that's so gross. I'm thinking maybe it was an East Coast, Midwest thing. Maybe we're, our schools in Connecticut were a little more progressive because my husband went to high school here in Kansas City and his school was like yours. The girls all took home ec and the boys all took shop. But for some reason, he was brought on as a teaching assistant in the home ec class. Mm. And at the end of the year, they gave him a certificate of completing you know, a year as a teacher's assistant, which is framed and hung in the kitchen that he rarely uses to cook. And if he does, it's to heat a can of soup. You know? That's actually kind of funny. I think every time he cooks something, you should put a little gold star on the frame. Like you get an award. Yeah. I don't know. It's like the older he gets, the less he cooks and the more ignorance he seems to be claiming about cooking. Because we got married he took his turn cooking dinner. You know, we alternated. And now it's suddenly, oh, I don't know how to cook that. Can't you cook hmm. it? I don't know how to make spaghetti. <laughs> That's called the drop the dishes method. It works great. Yeah, it's successful in my house because I just roll my eyes and it's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, oh, you're going to go hungry then because I had a late lunch. <laughs> you're like, I have memorized 263-8888. That's the Pizza Hut delivery number. <laughs> oh, I hate Pizza Hut. Sorry. It's too salt. I got a salt problem when I eat out. I grew up in Wichita. It's almost like a religion. <laughs> <laughs> pizza Hut pizza makes my tongue shrivel up kind of like a slug when you put, if you were to put salt on it. I imagine that I is never did it, but yeah. Counterindicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's gross. Well, the Boston Cooking School was opened in 1879 with the goal of teaching, and I quote, the daughters of mechanics, unquote, the principles and practicalities of a trade. The first semester was actually geared to train teachers for the second semester, which <laughs> sounds a lot like podcasting. <laughs> Um, there were two teachers at the first semester, Joanna Sweeney, who had been running her own small cooking school for six years, but was of a questionably low social class for the committee and therefore the upper crust members of the organization thought that they needed to send a representative to monitor each of the classes from the back. Mm -hmm. And then they had a celebrity cookbook author and lecturer named Maria Parloa, who would give lectures to the more upper crust of student, to which the committee ladies voted themselves half price entry. <laughs> Firmly classist, you could see, or um, catering to your target market, if we were being more generous. <laughs> Even the ad for the cooking school opening up, it said to offer instruction in cooking for those who wish to earn their living as cooks or who would make practical use of such information in their families. So they're basically saying, yeah, anybody come, but you know, things are going to be different. Classes are going to be different if you're training to be a cook or if you're training to put together a menu for your cook. The first class of seven learned tomato soup, mutton stew, steamed apple pudding, and then they learned how to make bread, but there wasn't time to bake it. 
because it has to prove. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know who baked it. I hope somebody. Mrs. Parloa's cooking show, let's call it that, featured souffles, meringues, lobster, and grouse. So there you go. Upstairs, downstairs. Right. As advertised. Both branches of cooking became immensely popular with a middle class of, quote, respectable ladies, unquote, interested in learning the principles of cookery in order to manage their own household. So they started to come and then they started what's called a normal school. So that's a teacher's college. So the normal school course in which you taught the next generation of domestic science teachers. So those two classes started to emerge as popular middle ground to the two extremes. But there was a problem with staffing. Joanna Sweeney was just too coarse for everything but the very bottom classes. And Maria Parloa was great PR and was great in the room, but was prohibitively expensive. And I will tell you, props to her because she knew her value and she demanded her value and they had to pay her or not get her my way or the highway. Well, they had to choose the highway because they mostly couldn't afford her. They had to find the middle ground. Committee cast about for someone who could run the school. The woman that that net landed on, her name was Mary Lincoln. Not that one, not the presidential one. This one was actually a college graduate. She was married, but her husband had become ill and she needed to take a job as a domestic. So that's how she was learning to cook. I would like to tell you a tiny bit about the college that she graduated from, because I think it is going to make sense. Wheaton Female Seminary was a school heavily weighted toward math and science. Um, if we covered schools on this show instead of ladies, <laughs> this school would be definitely worth covering as a subject. They subjected their female students to traditional male subjects with high expectations. They had fully equipped chemistry labs, one of the very first institutes of higher learning to place a value on physical education for women. They taught the women that all things were possible. They taught them how to think, not what to think necessarily. Mm -hmm. Radical. She was married the year after she graduated from this institution, but I cannot imagine that it didn't leave its mark upon her in a good way. How did you put it that her husband began to fail and she what? Had to take work as a domestic. But she sort of later characterized it as the odd sewing and cleaning job. So she oh. was downplaying her domestic service also. Well, I think she's one of those people that this uh, Women's Education Association wanted because she was upper crust, but she did know all the skills. She was like, right. Oh. I do think she was hired on her ladylike manner and obvious intelligence. Wheaton also had cachet because she certainly did not know anything about teaching. She knew she could cook. 
but had no professional experience doing it and certainly had never taught anywhere. But you may as well jump in the deep end after two weeks of classes with the (laughs) indomitable but unacceptable Mrs. Sweeney and her attendants at several of Mrs. Parloa's lectures, Mrs. Lincoln began to teach the normal school classes herself. And while she's on this rapid trajectory, shortly after that, she became the school's very first principal. Not only is she teaching, she's running the place. And Mr. Lincoln moved with his wife into two rooms on the premises at the school. So this family is very invested. And it's sad because it was a very rocky start. People wanted Maria Parloa. I mean, she was great PR. They couldn't afford her. The students were disappointed, kind of like when you go and you see a Broadway play and you get a little piece of paper in your program, the part of so-and-so, your favorite star, will be played by question mark who you've never heard of. They were a little bit bummed, you know? Like a bait and switch almost. Yeah. But over time, Mrs. Lincoln became the heart and soul of the institution. And within two years, they had enrolled 400 students, most firmly in that unexpected middle class. Graduates of the normal school, remember that's the teacher college, had professional opportunities opening up to them all over the country in school and hospital kitchens, as consultants in the brand new field of branded food manufacturing, as matrons of asylums or prisons, as lecturers, as writers, as teachers in public schools, or in their very own establishments. Perhaps they would open their own restaurants. I mean, the vistas opening up were just endless. The coursework is so interesting to me. Psychology, hygiene, bacteriology taught by a medical doctor, laundry work, foods, it's mysteriously named foods class, what's that? (laughs) Chemistry and cookery as applied to public school work observation at public schools, and then the only place you ever got your hands dirty, question mark, because you were supposed to keep your apron clean. Good luck to you. The only place you got to work with actual food and heat was this class called laboratory practice. The only place you learned to cook in that one class. So much of this looks like Wheaton College to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like the focus was on theory, background, materials calculations. I mean, it's good training. Mm -hmm. But at the end, is your pie awesome or does it taste good? They went through the economics of buying food, the history of where it came from, the properties of, of heat. They talked about the composition of water, sanitation, presentation, the chemistry of digestion. The principles of scientific cookery were a hot commodity. But no one wanted to say the word delicious because it was like, "Mm, that's kind of animalistic. Like eating is really indelicate. (sighs) And they wanted to kind of separate the eating part, which is sort of gross, from all of this higher thought about the concept of food. It was like a generation of hipsters. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine wanting to go to this school to become a cook? And saying, oh, this title said Boston Cooking School. What is all this math and science and biology and chemistry? But cooking itself or the idea 
of cooking became popular in the way that it did right when that Food Network first came on. Do you remember that? Like we could not get enough of watching people do assorted things. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't ever even cook. We just learned about it and and it was great. So that's kind of what was happening here. This all reminded me kind of of Alton Brown, the cooking Oh yeah. Channel. Yeah, he had the cooking shows. Um, because he talked about the science of it. You know, why does the steak sear better um, in a cast iron pan or whatever, the science of cooking. And then he cooked the recipes. The thing I remember him doing for some reason, he had a whole bunch of little play men in a train and he was talking about how different fats become rancid. <laughs> like if the it's like a full complement of these little men the fat can't get rancid because oxygen can't get in. But if a couple of them are gone, then oxygen gets in and starts beating everyone up. I just vaguely remember that demonstration. (laughs) I have a friend, Julie, that is her favorite. I want to say, you know, celebrity that might be putting too much, but you know, she saw him live. She loved all of his shows and Oh, she's a science teacher. Oh, there you go. Well, this movement was seemingly more interested in digestion than almost anything else. Like even the attractiveness of a dish, considered very important, was there to lead to the production of gastric juices. I mean, the (laughs) sensual nature of a Nigella Lawson taking a giant bite out of something would have made them all go home and put a wet rag on their forehead. (laughs) They would not understand what to do with that. Well, if Mrs. Lincoln's cooking school failed to produce cooks, it certainly produced ladies. I will tell you, they had a whole course about salad and how salad, especially lettuce salads, was the daintiest food. It has no food value. But it's really feminine and it's really something the mistress of the house should do at the table and and the lower classes should stick to pickles because this dainty food is for ladies. And I was cracking up about that and past my Titanic menus from that last day that are framed on my stairway. (laughs) Sure enough, the upper class has an asparagus in vinaigrette salad course at the end and the lower class has pickles. And I thought I have never noticed that before. Isn't that something? Wow. Well, we're in the right time period, I guess. So the philosophy that swept America, scientific cookery, Mrs. Lincoln became a highly paid, highly regarded lecturer, writer, and culinary authority. The school's reputation was stellar, and Mrs. Lincoln published a cookbook. She had realized that copying out the recipes over and over took a lot of valuable time, and she thought, well, a textbook would be handy. So she wrote one, Mrs. Lincoln's Boston Cookbook, What to Do and What Not to Do in Cooking. It was published about five years after the school had opened, and it was full of recipes, but it had all that scientific spin, all that stuff that Beckett was just talking about, the science of digestion. It began with all of that, and then it got to the recipes. Well, this book was used as a textbook in classes all across America. Let's just say, financially, Mrs. Lincoln's doing a bit of okay. (laughs) And so in 1885, Mrs. Lincoln left the school and took her personality with her to write more books, 
give more lectures, and ultimately to start a publication called the New England Kitchen Magazine. And the Boston Cooking School kind of reeled. Whoa, they had a hard time bouncing back from Mrs. Lincoln's departure. And there were a couple of years of massive flailing, which, to be honest, was exactly what you wanted to see in a past employer. (laughs) I really liked her because she also wrote a cookbook for cooks in public schools. Mary Lincoln also offered free lessons to immigrant women, and she created classes that taught sick room cookery for nurses. So she, you know, who she had teach the immigrant women? I want to ha- give you one guess. Who did she send to the poorest part of Boston to teach the poorest immigrant women in these free classes? What's her name? Sweeney. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, as fast as they could, they bundled her out of sight. Poor thing. I bet she was fabulous. I bet she was just like maybe a slightly lower class version of Mrs. Weasley. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think her classes would have been more entertaining, I would think. There were probably bad words. Yes. How exciting. That's why they would be more entertaining. (laughs) Well, so the school had a bit of a wobble for a while and they had to retrench and they had to do a PR campaign to both to get new students and to get wealthy investors to dig them deeply out of debt. They finally were able to hire a competent, intelligent previous student by the name of Mrs. Carrie Dearborn as the principal of the school. And she got it back on track and back on the upswing. Oh, you know, we almost missed right here, the opportunity to have this episode at all. School was going downhill because at the advanced age of 31, this publicity campaign that they had engaged in caught the notice of both Fanny's family and her employers, the Shaws. This was an opportunity for Fanny to learn more of a trade, to go to school and to, you know, get out of domestic service. They thought this was perfect for her. And at the time, the Boston Cooking School did not require a high school diploma for entry. So there wasn't that barrier that there was for every other teacher's college. Right. And the current principal had been a student there and the one before that and the one before that. So... You know, both entities encouraged her to enroll. You're a great cook. You would have loved to be a teacher. Why don't you get a scientific education in this fine, well-respected institution? This is an opportunity that you're not going to have again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was custom made for her, you know, obviously without people knowing it. But it really was. I mean, think about all that hope and potential at 16 cut down. She has lived half her life in a kind of limbo Mm -hmm. among kind-hearted people. I mean, she hasn't been suffering physically, but mentally, you know, you know, you're the smartest in your family. You know, your parents had such hopes for you. And then, and then you arrive at this place, the Boston cooking school, just full of women learning serious and rigorous material as she just blossomed. I do wonder how long it took her, like the learning curve to go back to learning because she hadn't really been doing formal learning for so long. I'm just thinking back to when we started the show and I hadn't been going to school for many years and how it was difficult to get back into the study mode. So I'm just, uh, this is me just rambling on about, you know, how long it took her. We don't know. 
And then I'm coming at it with a different perspective. I'm imagining because here's this pent up desire to be useful, to be recognized for her intelligence. I mean, all these like just human needs have just been pent up. I'm belaboring the Harry Potter references here, but like Hermione Granger with her mind, with her plain old muggle middle school education, gets (laughs) flung into this exciting new world of just concepts entirely new. She can't get enough. They gave her a time turner so she could get more. It was that magical for Fanny Farmer to go from being a cook in one family's house to just this like maelstrom of possibilities. And she was such a shining star at the school that at the end of her first year, she was hired to be the assistant principal and began to teach classes herself. So here from the shadows came the spicy redhead with the magnetism that managed to draw others to her. She brought with her this just faith in her students' abilities and the zeal for cooking that had been missing from this sort of rigid academia they were peddling in here. She said the word delicious. Give a dish an appreciative sniff and just be like, hmm, like (laughs) this proto-nigella. Cooking is an art as well as a science. Don't forget beauty. Don't forget novelty. Her growing philosophy seemed to be treat cooking as a creative affair and yourself as an artist. What you need is a good base. And then, you know, like gestures to the outside world, regard your oyster. I mean, like, <laughs> she, I know like the whole class would just sit forward and like, She says that if you can do this, you can do anything. And they'd write it in their notebooks like, wow, you know, and just be a little inspirational. And one thing that kept getting to her, though, was this constant irritant of the vagueness with which measurements were given in recipes. The best employees always see room for improvement in your organization. They focus on a weird thing that you guys take for granted. It might be software that's obsolete, that's irritating. In my case, I was famous for respect the tape because I used to use painter's tape during remodels to keep everything neat. (laughs) You know, like, and that's weird. But Fanny had her own bugbear and she just was all about this. Mrs. Lincoln's cookbook gave measurements. She gave them using teaspoons, which are the common silver spoons now in general use. And if you needed half a teaspoon, you drew an imaginary line down the middle of that teaspoon. The thing is, there were actually measuring devices on the market at this time. They just weren't selling. Now, truly, this system was a lot better than centuries before, where you had a knob of butter, for example, a handful of flour, some spices. I ordered a facsimile of the first American cookbook, uh, American Cookery from 1796, which does mention pints and ounces, but otherwise gives you recipes like this. This is directions to make a syllabub. Sweeten a quantity of cider with sugar and nutmeg, then milk your cow into your liquor, the amount you think proper. So yes, that might be delicious. We had a version of syllabub in the Jane Austen episode, not milked straight from a cow, but it's (laughs) not very replicatable by even yourself. The next time you wanted room temperature milk juice, you were going to have to do a crapshoot again. (laughs) 
Gross. So a teacup, like a pink cup on a hook, fine. A spoon, well, that's fine if it's the same teacup that's been hanging off the shelf at grandma's house, but it's not good for the scientific cook. And this is some major problem with a school that is so into scientific precision. Cooking schools did start to use these new metal measuring cups. They were sold in sets of two. One was marked in fourths, one was marked in thirds, but yet you had to eyeball from the top, like am I at the line? And then manufacturers started releasing one cup that had the measurements on each side with their name printed, stamped in it, mm-hmm. which I kind of want one just for the name purposes. of the company or the yeah, like the name cup. of the flower. It was usually oh, flower. I oh, I see. It was a marketing device. Okay, got it. It was like a premium and it might have even come inside the flower. Flower, you know what? Flower manufacturers were big on the marketing because later they're doing the fabrics, you know, using fabrics, calicos to make bags that housewives would then turn into clothing. We don't think of flour like that these days, do we? They were very No, and you know, it was a flour manufacturer that came up with the idea of pre-mixed pancake mix too. Oh, right. Yeah. Bakeries in general, um, we escaped the Cracker Barrel and got into what they called um, sanitary packaging via um, cracker companies, too. So bakeries were on the forefront of some major innovations in food. Cool. Fanny really, really thought that you should not leave anything to chance. You know, forget those rounded teaspoons. Fanny was strongly telling people that they needed to level off those teaspoons and level off their cup measurements so that there's not that extra bit at the top. It's exactly when you take a knife and level the top off of it, which is how she earned the name, the mother of level measurement. Oh my gosh. Does anyone in the audience call this implement a case knife? She would always say, take up your case knife and level it off. Take up your case knife and level it off. Like she said it so often. And from what I can tell, a case knife is either just another name for a butter knife or is a slightly bigger butter knife that has a straight side to it. They used to be called case knives because hotels and restaurants did not provide cutlery. And so it would come in a little leather case of a fork and a knife. Mm-hmm. That you would put in your pocket if you were a man, or I guess hand to your servant if you were a lady, because you probably <laughs> didn't have pockets. Uh, I joke, but anyway, so she she kept saying, "Level it off. A cup of flour, measure it level. A half cup. Don't eyeball it. Measure it level." I imagine a room full of students calling and responding to her up on her platform. How do we measure this? Level it. It was something she was very serious about. You get hold of some reliable recipes, and then you bask in the family praise. Level measurements are the key. She loved her work so much. (laughs) She did. That was her thing. But she would come every morning with boxes of supplies from the early markets she had gotten up early and been to. And she'd be the last to leave each night after keeping notes and making diagrams in some very detailed notebooks. The students were inspired by her enthusiasm. The school prospered. And when in time, Principal Carey took her own turn on the lecture circuit and being famous for her writing, she moved on. And Fanny Farmer was given the job of principal at only 34 years of age.
So Fannie Farmer is in the driver's seat and the school attracted so many students that they had to move to larger quarters. And the school just went from win to win. The name Boston Cooking School really meant something. It had cachet. Her graduates were fanning out all over the country to teach in schools, to work in hospitals, to evangelize about the virtue of level measurement (laughs) and the satisfaction of a well-made meal. We cannot aspire to the joy of cooking yet. Um, Just the enthusiasm of cooking. We are Victorians (laughs) after all. And she was uh, on the uh, upper edge of allowable enthusiasm, I think. I did give you a little hint there, didn't I? In the last sentence, Fanny Farmer used her vast notebooks, her imagination, a lot of testing, and some liberal borrowing (laughs) of Mrs. Lincoln's previous cookbook to write a new style of cookbook. Heavily using Mrs. Lincoln's book. Fanny's rewrite was about 600 pages, and she took her manuscript down to a Boston publisher to get it published, thinking, well, Mrs. Lincoln's book sold well. Of course, this is going to sell well. The publisher didn't actually agree. They had looked down their noses at it a little and thought, "Mm, we will not take the risk. But if you would like to publish it at author's risk i.e. if it loses money, you take the hit and not us. Once it's published, we will act as your agent and distributor and we can put your book in our catalogs. That publisher was Little Brown and Company. Little Brown and Company was the firm that famously published Louisa May Alcott. Two beloved authors, one great publisher. Fanny had saved up some money doing this job as principal of this very famous cooking school. So she was able to finance that first run of 3,000 copies. She also was a very astute businesswoman in that she kept the copyright of her material instead of signing it over to her publisher. I just watched this movie, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, with Benedict Cumberbatch. It's on Prime. It just started. And he did not keep his copyright, and he landed in poverty. And he also had mental illness, which didn't make things any better. But Speaking of copyright and bringing Joy of Cooking back in, I seem to remember in that movie, Julie and Julia, Mm-hmm. How Irma Rombauer, the author of Joy of Cooking, explained to Julia Child that she hadn't made any money on the Joy of Cooking because she hadn't thought to secure her copyright. Is that not in the movie? I think it is. Uh, I only saw the movie once, and that was many years ago, so I couldn't tell you. But that does sound, if it wasn't her, then it's certainly something that happened a lot, I think. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you had to kind of think ahead. Her 1896 Boston Cooking School cookbook was published in January of 1896. She was 38 years old. It contained 1,500 recipes. And within that first year, there would be two reprintings. It was a very, very popular book. She was right. And the title eventually changed from the 1896 Boston Cooking School cookbook to the Fanny Farmer cookbook, because this book and the work she was doing at the Boston Cooking School made her a celebrity and her name had power. 
Well, okay. So this is a cookbook in a style entirely new, but don't get me wrong. Science is still very prominent. The second sentence of the 1896 edition reads as follows. 13 elements entered into the composition of the body. Oxygen, 62.5%. Carbon, 21.5%. Hydrogen, 10%. Nitrogen, 3%. Calcium, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, chlorine, sodium, magnesium, iron, and fluorine, the other 3%. (laughs) That's the second sentence of a cookbook. Um, She was very strict, very strict throughout this book in multiple places. A tablespoonful is measured level. A teaspoonful is measured level. A cupful is, say it with me, measured measured level. level. And she does give you a little history too of ingredients and their origin stories, but not within the recipes themselves. They are very, very clean. Mm -hmm. Once you get to them, because that takes a great deal of time because she's busy explaining the science behind the foods. And, you know, she'll take an element and then maybe give a small recipe with it and how it's used and then what that recipe does. But once she gets to the, you know, meat and potatoes of the book, the actual recipes, yeah, they are really clean, except for oven temperatures. And obviously she's cooking with a wood stove, a wood oven. She's cooking over flame. So the measurement for temperature is just hot oven, medium oven. It's not Like we would go, you know, 350. Unfortunately for Fanny and the rest of her scientific cookery cistern, temperature was not really standardized until the 1950s or so. That was a skill you just had to learn. Some people would put a piece of paper in, and if it turned the right color of brown, the oven was just right for bread. An experienced cook could tell by putting her hand inside of the oven to feel the temperature. This must have driven Fanny just crazy that she couldn't nail that down, but the technology was just not there. Not for many decades. A modern eye looking at the recipes, you're like, wow, this is so detailed. Wait a minute, what's a hot oven? You know, right. Well, what becomes clear as you go through this book at is that this is a book to teach you how to cook. The goal is get hold of some good recipes, knock them out, be proud of yourself, bask in the praise. You're welcome, Fanny Farmer. Like she codified the structure of Mrs. Lincoln's book. The ingredients are listed at the top in order of need and then directions at the bottom. But Mrs. Lincoln and Fanny's books have a decided difference in tone. Mrs. Lincoln's, her transitions between recipes are more chatty. You might find that once you add blah, 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 or that brings us to a variation much used by the French. I think it was very her personality, and I think it was Mm -hmm. fine, but you're not going to find that within the recipes uh, of Fanny's book. We are not here to make friends. (laughs) (laughs) in the recipe section. One of the authors I read characterized this book as a book to be consulted instead of read. You know, you want to make a thing, you'd flip, flip, flip to the brown bread page. We're going to handle your business. Right. There is occasional faffery 
like a basket made out of an orange filled with orange gelatin and topped with whipped cream. There's occasional what the hells like deep fried celery or clam frappe. I am not kidding you. You boil up the clams, do whatever with the clams. They're not part of the recipe. The water, freeze it into a delicious slush. Serve. Yuck. I swear to you. It's in there. I wrote exactly the same recipe down because I was like, wow, that's awful. She liked food, but she's feeding them this. I've never tried it. So, you know, maybe that's just me being picky. Is it frap or frappe? In Rhode Island, people said that they wanted a frap. Right. I am 100% sure it is supposed to be frappe. Yes, I agree completely. (laughs) No, I agree completely. But I growing up in that area, always called it a frap. No. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or even further in Rhode Island, they called it a cabinet. Okay. Never heard that one. Never understood why. Cabinet. Cabinet. Almost Cab- like C-A-B-N-E-T. Cabinet. cabinet. Nope. It's probably some holdover from like a village in Dorset yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested to know what like tiny little area of a tiny little state uses that word. Well, uh, for the most part, despite the examples we just mocked a second ago, this is a book that you can really refer to. It has at the back suitable combinations for serving breakfast, dinners, Thanksgiving menu, Christmas menu, several 12-course dinners. And you might not ever need these in your entire life, but you sure would like to be thought of as a person that would need that. You know, so having bought this book, Fanny believes you might one day need this and it makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Well, she even um, talked about how to set the table. She said, if your table looks like a hash house counter, you encourage people to eat accordingly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you give them the clam frappe frappe. And then you have to provide as part of the table service a bucket <laughs> for every diner when you tell them what it is they've just eaten. I think you place it to the left. I might have to. <laughs> I might have to consult my Emily Post on that one. What did Emily say? That's funny. In the back of this book, there was a list of equipment that you needed to buy if you wanted to set up a cooking school with 24 students in it. And as she was no slouch, an advertisement for the Boston Cooking School with prices and what you'll learn in each lesson. So the plain cooking class uh, was a dollar a class um, plus $3 for equipment. And here's what you learned in the first lesson. The making and care of a fire. Coffee. Mixing bread. Again, you didn't get to bake it. Sorry. (laughs) Tomato soup. Croutons. Boiled potatoes. Mutton chops. And German toast for dessert, which we literally call French toast. I looked up the recipe. It's the same exact thing. But they served it as a dessert. By the end of this course, the last lesson, you're making roast chicken and souffle. I mean, there is a strongly angled ladder to climb in this 12 weeks. It's amazing. The book was so popular that it started to be just referred to as Fanny Farmer, as in, oh, well, let's just look in Fanny Farmer. The way that The Tonight Show used to be called Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. if you're old enough to remember that. Right. And nobody called this book the Boston Cooking School Cookbook. They just referred to it by her name. So you could learn to cook just from the cookbook? 
And that was good because not everybody could go to Boston to go to school. And the book was so popular that once it was a hit in the United States, it went international. Fanny has a huge bestseller on her hands around the globe. And even though she's teaching cooking classes in Boston, she's also teaching people to cook all over the world. Fanny Farmer's lectures attracted thousands of people and... Her sisters encouraged her to correct her notoriously slapdash appearance for these appearances. She actually hired a lady's maid to keep her in clean aprons, tidy hair, and otherwise make her look respectable in public. (laughs) It just wasn't her thing to pay attention to. And um, how far has she come to be a person that needs a lady's maid before she gives her lecture to thousands of people? Mm Mm-hmm. There was a clamor to sign up for private lessons from Fanny Farmer herself. Fanny was a hot ticket. She even began to lecture to classes of doctors at Harvard Medical School about scientific principles of nutrition. She enlarged the coursework for nursing students. You know, care of the sick had been a mission of the committee even before they had made the Boston Cooking School. Um, they ran classes at hospitals. It was dear to Fanny's heart for sure. Meanwhile, while she was doing all of this stuff, she was busy writing her second book. Chafing dishes had become very fashionable at the table and she wrote a whole book of cookery to take advantage of this fad. She is no slouch when it comes to writing the coattails of fashion. She'd probably be writing an air fryer cookbook if she were alive today. (gasps) No bit of a lie. I know. I would buy it too because, man, I love my air fryer. All I do with this air fryer is like the chicken wings and tater tots that my child inhales as if they were oxygen. (laughs) There's veggie tots that... Um, The one that I have has a rotisserie basket. So the veggie tots, you don't have to keep... They're really soft. So they kind of stick when you have to flip them. But with the rotisserie basket, they, they're gently tumbled the whole time. So they're perfect when they come out. Well, I think I'm going to try to make that cheesecake. I can't cheesecake imagine how it works. In the air fryer? Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, I think I would need to buy a different innard oh. for my air fryer. Unless I, probably it came in the box and I threw it away. If you're, <laughs> I'm going to be totally truthful. They, I probably had a thing. Or it's probably just sitting in that cabinet. I don't know what it is. Maybe <laughs> further investigation isn't necessary. For all of her success, her philosophy was diverging from the Boston Cooking School. You know, they're focused so much on the science of teaching teachers. And that wasn't her favorite part. She loved to be in front of a person or people anxious to learn to prepare food, whether it's a private student or a whole room full of people. The practical side of cooking, elbows deep in a project, was her favorite part. And she really wasn't getting enough of that. And she really didn't feel like the Boston Cooking School valued cooking, which seemed (laughs) like a strange problem to have. And, And so she made the leap. In 1902, at the age of 45, she left the Boston Cooking School and set up its rival, Miss Farmer's School of Cookery. It was at 30 Huntington Avenue in Boston, which seems to be near Copley Square and the Boston Public Library now, which got me all excited. (laughs) We'll be fine, said the Boston Cooking School. Narrator voice, they were not fine. No, not at all. 
about a year later, after Fanny left, the Boston cooking school was over. At its height, Fanny's school would have four large classrooms and 10 teachers and an administrative staff. And her school definitely shifted focus to the practical aspects of cooking. There was course after course, different levels, different subjects, different audiences, from young newlyweds to cooks working as servants in private houses. Read the best houses. (laughs) (laughs) This is America. This is not England. Um, Yeah, not everyone had to cook. Classes for nurses, classes for matrons of schools. There was a class on the official duties of a waitress. There were classes on the feeding of infants and children. She tried to hit all possible aspects where somebody's actual hands might have to touch the actual food. She wanted to be teaching people the right way to do it. She was also creative with her pricing of her classes. The day classes were 50 cents each, and that's where she imagined that, you know, housewives would be coming to. But the night classes, which were geared towards professionals, were half price. The Boston Cooking School had kind of started out hoping to train servants, but why would the servants want to spend their day off at class, you know, (laughs) when they weren't getting paid for it? What possible benefit would that be to them? At that point, the employers didn't really see the benefit of letting their cook go to cooking school either. But now the cachet was so great and Fanny Farmer was so inventive and everybody was excited for these professional cooks to learn from her. So it was... uh, It was a coup. I mean, it was something the Boston Cooking School never could really pull off, Mm -hmm. even though they had wanted to for years. So she's busy. She is so very busy. She has got plates spinning on sticks all in a circle around her. And she wrote to a friend, I am working at my limit and surprising myself. And then she added a series of further plates. First off, she started a column in a popular women's magazine called Women's Home Companion. This she actually wrote with her sister, Cora. So it wasn't just her writing it, but she's not being lazy at all. In addition to teaching those cooking classes, she's starting to write even more cookbooks. First, she revises her original one and then the chafing dish cookbook. But then she writes the book that she feels was the most important of her career called Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent. She dedicated this book to her mother, quote, to my mother whose devotion to duty has inspired me to my best work. And the book begins with a quote from Florence Nightingale, episode 137 of the History Chicks podcast. She says, Invalid cookery should form the basis of every trained nurse's education. A good sick cook will save the digestion half its work. So if you feed the right foods that gives the body the energy to heal itself, you know. This was the book that she was the most proud of. Um, I think it's interesting that she called out, even in 1905, carbohydrates include the cheapest kinds of food and are apt to be taken in excess in institutions where large numbers are to be fed, which is still true. But she wanted to be clear that that wasn't the best for your sick patient. Um, She was also very concerned with 
fuel value per pound and ease of digestion. More of the science is included in this cookbook than in her previous two. Um, She dwelt particularly, however, on the non-scientific principle of aesthetics. In fact, in my copy, which is the 1912 edition of this book, there's photographs of specifically arranged fine china. Also, you're advised to adjust the size of your tray so that the patient doesn't feel deprived. If, in fact, their diet is to be limited, bring a very small tray. Alter your china from day to day. Give them a new pattern, something to look at. In fact, sight was the number one characteristic that she said was important for someone in the sick room. And I have to tell you, she would know. You know, like she Mm -hmm. was bedridden for so many years that that was the most important thing to her is that she felt important and she felt cared for. Um, She would say things like, don't openly serve your patient from a big pot of custard. Bring it in an individual dish. You know, make them feel like this is just for them. And that is just as important as what's actually in the dish. Taste is the second. Temperature is the third. Digestibility, then food value and then cost. And she says that every single member of the Boston Cooking School would have ordered those characteristics differently. They would have put food value and digestibility at the top. But as a formerly invalid person, she was firmly assuring us that we needed to consider other things. I thought that was a very humanistic way to go about this. Yes, I do too. And I think she wanted the uh, spread of this book to be even farther than just, you know, nurses and dietitians and hospital staff. She wanted this book in people's houses. She said, quote, in thousands of homes throughout the land where it will be inestimable to the mothers upon whom so much welfare of the family depends. This book even gave feeding advice from babies up through the age of 15, charts of what to feed the kids, you know, how much protein they should be having, how much milk they should be having, how to pasteurize the milk. Because in 1904, even though pasteurization had been around for a while, people were still drinking a lot of farm fresh milk. And she knew that that wasn't the healthiest way to be getting your milk. The edition I have of Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent, which I chose this edition for the very, very decorative cover. (laughs) Inside, in beautiful copper plate handwriting, it says Lillian E. Hogan, Christmas 1912, from Maddie. So, you know, something was happening in Lillian's house and her friend gave her this book to help her. Which is exactly what Fanny wanted it to happen with that book. You know, she's also in this book, she's giving a chapter on how alcohol, especially in patent medicines, hello, Lydia Pinkham, is not the best thing to do for yourself. And the very first recipe, when she finally gets to it, is for rice water, which is just what it says. It's on page 73. You have to get to page (laughs) 73 before you get the first recipe. And then it's followed by barley water, very similar, and toast water, which she says is good in cases of extreme nausea. I don't know, just the thought of it made me feel nauseous. But the recipe that I got so excited about was Irish moss lemonade with figs 
and Irish mush jelly. That's a callback to Situate, you know, from her childhood. It's mm-hmm. Irish moss and water and chopped figs and sugar and lemon juice. And you cook it until the figs lose their shape. You strain it and you cool it. And it sounds delicious. Hmm. Even though there's seaweed in it. She would not only hearken back to the foods of her youth and drinks, she would actively seek out new recipes to incorporate both in the school and in her cookbooks. She would write to friends asking for regional recipes. She would go out, usually with her mama and papa, to high-end establishments like Delmonico's. That's appeared in our audio before. She would order a lot of things all over the table and then analyze them to death. I got one of those in my house. (laughs) Chris Graham does the same thing. Like, oh, let's see what it is. And then if she couldn't determine it, she would often ask the waiter to ask the chef for the recipe. And if he wouldn't give it to her, she would boot like a piece of it out and have it analyzed back at the lab, you know, back at the school. (laughs) Um, She would, I mean, purposely not get off more if they wouldn't give her the recipe. How about that? How about them apples? (laughs) It must be very exciting to be able to indulge your curiosity that way and also inspire yourself that way at last. She is a woman of means now, however embarrassing it is for your companions. I can't speak for mama and papa, (laughs) farmer, but... Oi, sometimes you get a hold of a new sauce on your plate and you think, oh no, here it goes. Here it goes. <laughs> What's in this? Where'd you get it? Really? Oh, I heard about that. Oh, I wonder if I can make it myself. Spruce, you say. Should I ferment it? And like, la 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 la. <laughs> Meanwhile, fact, it's just sitting there eating. Like, we came here for a reason. <laughs> Hello, I would like to order a drink, please. <laughs> With Megolio in it, I'm not even going to ask. Absolutely. What is Megolio? <laughs> Basically, you put a whole bunch of tiny, unripe pine or spruce cones in a jar. Uh-uh. And I think sugar, I didn't really pay attention. And then you shake it every once in a while or turn it upside down. And after a while, it gets really thick and it's an interestingly flavored um, syrup. It tastes like pine salt? No, pine. <laughs> pine and sugar. It doesn't taste bad. And it okay. it's M-U-G. I don't know. I'll send you a picture of the jar. Okay. I, Chris I don't made think- them. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think I could find it anywhere here in this town, but maybe you I'll can. come to your house for a drink. I was going to say, it's at my house. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she was gathering recipes because she was searching for recipes to put both in the new edition of her OG cookbook, but in a new cookbook called What to Have for Dinner, followed immediately by Catering for Special Occasions. and. A New Book of Cookery, her last book, published in 1912. I love her overarching philosophy in all these cookbooks. Mm. That a woman capable of following instructions could very well surprise herself. And that made me think of when we had HelloFresh as a sponsor. And I'm still thinking about how proud I am that I pickled those onions myself. (laughs) 
and how ridiculously smiley that made me. But I literally just followed directions and I'm like, I didn't even know you were allowed to do that, (laughs) you know? And so I can only imagine people opening these books with trepidation and then realizing like, oh my goodness, Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I have to make no decisions. I don't have to negotiate with myself about whether this is enough or is my hand big enough for this handful of flour or right. what order do I do? And and there's nothing, every trepidation is taken away from you and she just leaves you with pride and what a gift. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I like that she took the planning out of it. These books start with menus. And then give the recipes for that dinner. So you don't have to put the menu together, which to me is the hardest part. What are we going to eat? Which is the name of this book. What to have for dinner. It's like, that's the <laughs> eternal question. Still, now. By now, age 55, her health was starting to fail. Polio never really does leave you. Uh, unfortunately, it likes to lurk around and get you when you're more vulnerable. And for the last two years of her life, Fanny gave her lectures from a wheelchair. And once again, she had lost the use of her legs. She also most likely had a stroke. So she's writing these cookbooks while she's recuperating from a stroke. She also has great hope for the future. She began construction on a summer house for her and her family to live in just outside of Boston. Such an accomplishment, Mm -hmm. you know, for her. The last official dinner party demonstration she gave, not the last demonstration, but the last dinner party demonstration, I'm only talking about this because I want to talk about the menu, was in December of 1914. Probably it is the height of faffery. If you ask me, that people loved so much. Honestly, she was a beloved figure. By now, she looked like our vision of Mrs. Claus. She had a pompadour. <laughs> yep. She had a white ruffled cap. She had a pince-nez, you know, the little uh-huh. I was just gonna round say, yeah, the glasses. glasses. Yep. Um, she's up there on the platform and she made veal wrapped in bacon. That's simple enough. I bet the theater smelled great. Hope you ate before you got here. Then (laughs) Thorndike potatoes, which are mashed bananas and mashed potato put back in the banana skin, sprinkled with Parmesan and broiled. Okay. Sorry, that one's making me gag a little. Then a tango salad of avocados in a shape. And then you add truffles and orange slices with a sweet dressing flavored with orange. All right. I'm on board with that. Pimento fritters, which are so radical for the time. But to me, I think we're chili rellenos. It's a big pepper stuffed with cheese. Mm-hmm. deep fried. Mm. All of this doesn't sound super healthy, but whatever. We've got vegetables and fruits in it. Yeah. <laughs> and then she made for dessert a spectacular pineapple bomb or Bombay. I don't know if it had an accent or not. I forgot to note it. And it was a like a, you would make a pattern of fruit on the outside of a bowl and then pack ice cream and cake into it and then turn it out on a plate for maximum applause, applause, <laughs> applause. It was a spectacular, visually appealing dinner that really wasn't that practical. Plus, avocados were so expensive. I mean, I don't know if you could afford all the ingredients in this dish. However, her last official presentation was breakfast and sandwich bread. Let's bring it on down. Bring it on down. (laughs) And that was January 5th, 1915. Shortly after that, she suffered another stroke, and this one she would not survive. 
On January 15th, 1915, 57-year-old Fanny Farmer passed away. She's buried in the Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When Fanny died, her parents were both still alive. Her father died just a few months later, but her mother lived on until 1926 to the age of 89 or 90. Her whole family ultimately would be buried together at this Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The women's home companion that had been running her columns for all those years kept running them for almost a year without any mention of her dying. When they finally ended it, her final column was her biggest hits, really. Boston baked beans, steamed brown bread, baked and stuffed haddock, Indian pudding, and salt codfish balls. Indian pudding is um, cornmeal and brown and white sugars and milk and ginger and cinnamon, and you bake it for like two hours. Mm. I know. Doesn't that sound good? Mm-hmm. Fanny left an estate of over $200,000. That's well over $5 million today. And she never got to live in her new house. Um, that's really sad. Her family did move there and it recently sold for $1.7 million. Mm-hmm. Even though she never lived there, you know, her legacy was there. Her family was there. And her sister Cora um, took over the school. She made revisions to the original cookbook. And then Cora's daughter-in-law, Wilma Perkins, took over after that. And as far as I could tell, the last revision was in 1996 by, quote, the Fanny Farmer Corporation, which kind of made me a little sad. The people in my family that are over the age of, let's say, 40, when they asked who we were covering and I told them, they are like, oh, the one that was on Match Game. (laughs) That would be Fanny Flagg. She's alive still. And she also wrote Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, among other books. If you want an audible recommendation, um, Fanny Flagg actually reads Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Highly recommend. Yeah. It has nothing to do with cooking. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I, it does. It does. Tipsy cooks. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, yeah. Like, I think there's a line in there, in fact, that says, Iggy says that if you know her, not to worry, that's, you know, she, Sipsy is doing the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, I don't know. I think it's great. Well, I almost think that more important than the money, although she did sell in her lifetime 300,000 copies of her initial book. Her legacy lives on in the thousands of people who pass through her orbit on their way out into the world. You know, then you've got millions of people that she influenced through them. That is a legacy worth celebrating. I mean, she inspired such radically different people as Julia Child, who you know grew up not being able to cook because we've told you about it. (laughs) But managed to knock out fudge from the Fanny Farmer cookbook, although the 1896 version doesn't call it fudge, but something like chocolate cream candy. So Julia Child used to be able to do it um, as a non-cook. And then flash forward to the most modern of day, Sarah Jessica Parker says that she sees her old copy of the Fanny Farmer cookbook as an easily understood old friend. Oh, yeah, I love that. I like reading cookbooks. I I admit that the science of her cookbook kind of I skimmed over quite a bit, but I just like reading them and imagining what the dish is going to taste like. 
based on the ingredients. Is that weird? No. I don't know. I think I that's actually the principle of 90% of cookbooks. Mm. You know, that's another thing I kept reading. People would say, I have 50 cookbooks, all with glorious photography, but the one I reach for when I'm actually going to make something mm-hmm. is Fanny Farmer. Right. You know, people later, in later days, said the same thing about Julia Child's cookbook. And there actually is a connection from the 70s. The culinary world was feeling like the additions of Fanny Farmer were getting a little bit off track. There hadn't been a a cook or a chef in charge for a couple of additions worth. Mm-hmm. And Julia Child's editor, Judith Jones, was responsible for getting it back on track with tested recipes and uh, back to respectability. Hmm. There is another legacy that only began four years after Fanny Farmer died. A candy maker named Frank O'Connor created the Fanny Farmer Candy Company and opened a shop in Rochester, New York. He felt that spelling her name F-A-N-N-Y instead of the way that she spelled it, F-A-N-N-I-E, would be enough to differentiate his company from Fanny Farmer herself. Mr. O'Connor was a completely blind, extremely successful businessman who had already opened up the Laura Secord chain of candy stores. Laura Secord, a Paul Revere or Sybil Luddington type figure from the War of 1812 in Canada, who went on a 19-mile journey to warn that the Americans were coming. And also had nothing to do with the chocolate company that bore her name. So moving on with that pattern down to America and the name Fanny Farmer. And he started to open what he called candy studios all over America. And I will tell you that the copyright infringement would never fly today. Um... He was definitely basking in her reflected glory, you know. Mm-hmm. And at one point, a image appeared on the candy boxes of a woman who looked an awful lot like our Fanny Farmer. So I don't know how much he's distancing himself. If that practice sounds familiar, um, you should also note that we spoke about something very similar happening to Dolly Madison. Mm-hmm. The Peanuts characters really had very little to do with the former first lady. (laughs) But yet they're both associated with a tasty baked good with raspberry frosting and coconut sprinkles. (laughs) So the candy company uh, really did last all the way through the 1950s. And if Fanny Farmer's name sounds familiar to you, that actually might be why. But I would like to close this section with a quote from the New York Times. Fanny produced one of the world's truly great books. Next to the Bible, it has probably been one of the most important books in the daily lives of American families. And now it's time for media. And as usual, let us start with books. There is a book I absolutely loved that does not exclusively focus on Fanny, but does go through the domestic science movement, the home economics movement, um, assorted developments by women in culinary history, and has a whole chapter on both Mrs. Lincoln and on Fanny Farmer and their effects on um, 
American cuisine, really. It's called Perfection Salad, Women and Cooking at the Turn of the Century by Laura Shapiro. Honestly, I had to try not to read ahead because I didn't (laughs) want to get confused because a lot of people have such good input. I just I just love it. The the women's chemistry lab at MIT and also the allure of the jello salad which we are often concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that that book is kind of hard to get. Uh my library system didn't have it. So, and I think I looked to buy it and it was out of my price range. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah, so I honestly the only book that I had was a children's book called Fanny in the Kitchen by Deborah Hopkinson, illustrated by Nancy Carpenter. Unfortunately, the history in it is a little off, but it's such a charming book that I hesitate to not recommend it. The illustrations were very charming, and there's a couple of recipes that you can make with kids. I can also link you to digitized copies of her cookbooks, of Fanny's cookbooks that are out there. So if you'd like to make your own recipes uh, from her Fanny Farmer cookbooks, you certainly can do that. If you want to make the frappe, though, you're going to have to catch an earlier edition because it does disappear. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> From later edition. I mean, I don't know why. It's such a quality imagine. recipe. Uh, yeah, it, it vanishes. So you got to catch an early one. I had a, um, just for a good sampling, I had a 1990 mm-hmm. and I had a 1951 edition. And then I had a reprint of the 1896 edition. And my reprint was spectacular because in the back, although these didn't appear in the original book, are a whole bunch of period appropriate advertisements. Oh my Some goodness. of which mention Miss Fanny Farmer as a um, proponent of their product. Cleveland's baking powder has her top of the list as to all the leading teachers of cookery and writers on domestic science use and recommend it. And Miss Fanny Farmer is the very first person on the list. And Mrs. D.A. Lincoln is only number four. Oh dear. I also had um, a copy of uh, the first American cookbook, American Cookery 1796 by Amelia Simmons, which is almost too hard to read because they use the um, long S. Um, I think they call it a medial S, you know, in no. the middle. Yeah. No? <laughs> no, I don't know what that is. So instead of um, suggestion suggested, it'll say forgefted. Oh, I see. And you might be diff-pleaved. Got it. It's a font <laughs> issue. Any S that appears in the middle of a word, it almost looks like a long F. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. 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 Um, I was so tickled because they talk about things like, um, I want to get to the part where she talks about garlic. It makes me laugh. Okay. Where she writes, garlics, though used by the French, are better adapted to the uses of medicine than cookery. (laughs) Definitely disapproves. Oh, yeah. I love this book, Fanny's Last Supper. It is so funny. A man who has um, America's Test Kitchen decided to try an experiment um, and he is recreating one of Fanny's meals over the course of two years with a bunch of able assistants, including people he literally like stole from James Beard, I think. Anyway, (laughs) so they have a lot of 
history inside of this book. Well, that is also a documentary. It was created in 2009. When Christopher Kimball created that dinner, he also had the whole thing filmed. So there is a documentary on it. The dinner was a 12-course dinner served to 10 guests, and it became both that book and a PBS special that you can now watch for a couple bucks on Prime which if you want don't want to read the book, that's a good way to see it. But they're cooking over fire. They're using authentic methods. They're making gelatin from the cow's feet. They're um, boiling calf brains, which not good. Calf, what were the calf heads for? Yeah, mock turtle soup always has a calf's head. Did I tell you that's why, that's why in Alice in Wonderland, the mock turtle has a cow head? Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned that in the Alice in Wonderland. I was like so tickled by that little secret. Like that's why the illustrator do him that way because a mock turtle soup would be made with a calf's head. I love it. I'm looking right now at all the pictures of the jellies they made, like jello, gelatin salads, layered things. I mean, man, they made a lot of them and they all had to use calf's foot gelatin. They are spectacular. They are elaborate. Wow. The desserts are where they shine here. I also think it's funny that they didn't completely understand about wood and coal-fired stoves and got that stove hotter than a pizza oven. And somebody wearing a chef coat made of synthetic materials discovered that their garment was melting. Mm-hmm. I think in the documentary, there's some point when they're cooking, their parts of their bodies are covered by aluminum foil, I want to say. So that they didn't catch on fire. <laughs> that like is the awesome. uniforms, you know, over their chef coats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a you know if you're going to spend two years making a dinner, I you should probably get the most mileage out of it. So I'm glad he did both the documentary and the book. Good for him. He has a quote in here. After all this work, I think he came to the same conclusion that Fanny Farmer did. And I'm going to quote from Fanny's Last Supper. Happiness is derived, I propose, from being useful, from putting one's oar in the water and helping move the boat forward. Happiness is enhanced when work is shared and appreciated by others. Excessive leisure, it might be stated, is a recipe for unhappiness. I think Fanny would agree. She filled all the minutes of her day with like things, 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 things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once she got out of bed, there was no stopping her. I have some links. Uh, her obituary. Um, occasionally and recently, the New York Times has gone back, realizing it has neglected to cover some of the forgotten segments of the population on their obituary page. And Fanny Farmer came in for one of those tributes. And so I can link you to that. Um, also to the history of the Fanny Farmer Candy Company with photography, etc. And then um, Mrs. Lincoln's book in its entirety is digitized in an archive. And um, you can look at it through our link. A list of editions of Fanny Farmer's books in order. Also the listing for Fanny's house. And as usual, I will clip things and put them in the Pinterest board so you can see uh, of which we speak from Fanny Farmer's appearance to the elaborate jellies Christopher Kimball made for his dinner party. Nice. And in closing, this is the quote that Fanny Farmer chose to put at the front of her book. It is a quote from Ruskin. 
Cookery means the knowledge of Medea and Circe, of Helen and the Queen of Sheba. It means the knowledge of all herbs and fruits and balms and spices and all that is healing and sweet in the fields and groves and savory and meats. It means carefulness, inventiveness, and willingness and readiness of appliance. It means the economy of your grandmother and the science of the modern chemist. It means much testing and no wasting. It means English thoroughness and French art and Arabian hospitality. And at last, it means that you are to be perfectly and always ladies and loaf givers. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on either Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. I am going to try to make Fanny Farmer's fudge. I figure if the young Julia Child, novice in the kitchen, can pull it off, then I can too. And if I ever find that part, I will make that air fryer cheesecake. And where am I going to share these triumphs of culinary mastery? Well, it will be in our podcast lounge. You just go to the podcast page, find the button in the middle where it says join group and click to enter the world of amazing conversation and sharing that is going on in there. There are a lot of themed days from um, look out your window Wednesday to toot your own horn Tuesday. It's amazing. There's a lot going on and a lot of kindred spirits. So I hope to see you there. I might need a day or two on this Pinterest board, but I promise you I will get it put together and turned on live for your viewing pleasure. Don't miss Susan and I on the History Channel. Hooray! We are both on the episode of The Engineering That Built the World entitled The Statue of Liberty. The song in the middle is Slow Cookin' by Joe Smith and the Spicy Pickles. And the song at the end is That's What Hopes Are For by Emma Wallace. I appreciate your concern When you say I've got a lot to learn You say one day The piper will have to get paid And all good things have got to end And I have been on a good thing bend You say you know it's best to keep my expectations low But I've got my head in the clouds Where I'm safe from the madding crowds My hopes are high and more Cause that's what hopes are for I build castles in the air And I plan to live up While they're still eggs It's easier than when they've got legs Don't hold my horses Give them free reign of courses And don't wait for that shoe to fall No, I don't even wait at all I look, just leap I'd sell my cow for some magic beans I've got my head in the clouds There I'm safe from the madding crowds My hopes are high and more
hopes are for. Hopes up for.